Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. Today is Saturday, the 13th of October. I'm Corey Schink, and joining me today are Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Adam Daniels. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to be discussing the state of childhood in America. We're going to examine the state of the family, the education system, and we're going to take a look at their mental health. So brace yourselves, because it isn't looking pretty. Now, I think all of our listeners have been paying attention to the news lately, and they're aware of some of the madness that's been going on in the public school system. And I'm referring specifically to Satanists invited to speak to elementary school uh, children in order to increase their uh, awareness of the diversity of religious thought. Now, you know, that is, you know, pretty crazy, I think, but it's actually just the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to be discussing today. But before uh, before we get to that, I'd like to go over some of the kind of interesting developmental psychology that we've come across so that we have a baseline for viewing the kind of strange institutions we're going to be examining. So I think everybody is who has ever taken an intro to psychology course is aware of Eric Erickson and his developmental stages of childhood. So he discusses the, the different milestones that children need to meet in order to become responsible adults. He talks about the trust milestone, which is met in the first year of life when the child learns to trust their parents in order to that they will meet their basic needs, uh, feed them and take care of them, regulate their emotions. Then he discusses the need for autonomy versus uh, feelings of shame and doubt, which toddlers go through around ages of one to three when they experience their world, learn that they can control their actions, and, and learn how to play with others. Uh, Jordan Peterson discusses this uh, extensively in his books and in his uh, talks about around the ages of three and then moving on into four, the children need to learn how to play with one another in order to understand how to you socialize with other kids and you learn how to, you know, as you go through life, basically how you play the game, whatever game that is, whether it's school, college, the job, you know, how you get along with others and then can, uh, you know, when, you know, give and take. So then Erickson talks about the next stage of initiative versus guilt, where children uh, initiate activities and achieve goals while interacting with others, and then move on to an industry versus inferiority, which is more of the elementary school stage of ages of 6 through 12, where children fa face the task of learning how to become industrious and, you know, do their homework and, you know, work a, you know, basic job and, you know, earn an allowance and feel like they're contributing to the small society that they, you know, that surrounds them. And if eventually when they're adolescents, they have to go through um, the, the identity versus role confusion. Yes. <laughs> of creating or forging their personal identity. Um, now, if any of these stages aren't met, then we we come across the uh, basic compromised core capacities. With that in mind, we're going to be looking at how all these needs are not being met in the modern world. Specifically, ever since really the the sexual revolution that was initiated back in the 60s and 70s that has drastically changed the structure of the family. And now the generation that we're going to be discussing is the generation born around 1995 through 2005. This generation was 50% likely to experience living without a father. 
and children from single-parent homes without a father are more than twice as likely to be arrested for juvenile crimes, twice as likely to be treated or emotional, for emotional and behavioral problems, and twice as likely to be suspended or expelled from school, and a third more likely to drop out before completing high school. Now, this really came about precisely because of you know, feminist lawyers, specifically the National Association of Women's Lawyers, which claim credit for pioneering no-fault divorce laws, which made it extremely easy for any family to, or for anyone to initiate divorce proceedings because you didn't have to have uh, adultery, betrayal, any sort of abuse. All you had to do is say, well, I just don't like this other person anymore, so we're gonna go ahead and you know, get a divorce and I'm gonna go and move on with my life, you know, because we're growing apart or something like that. So at that point, you know, then, once divorce started uh, occurring at more rapid rates, then you've got more children growing up without fathers, and you reach this point in the 90s where these children are now, you know, about half, you know, there's like a 50-50 chance you're going to be born into a, into a house without a father, and you're not going to experience some of those important milestones that fathers provide to a child. Well, one thing that I know that Jordan Peterson has brought up in regard to that point uh, about the importance of having a father and to child development was um, in one of the Q&A session videos that he gave, um, he was talking specifically about fathers and the need for them to roughhouse with the children. And just simply the father being there and, you know, kind of wrestling with the child, you know, just kind of a rough play kind of thing. It, it gives the child an ability to feel out their own physical boundaries and, um, you know, boundaries with, with others as well. And that's uh, one important reason why uh, having a father in the family is, is important. Also, just on a very basic level, you have the father being uh, the traditional breadwinner, which has changed quite a lot in the past few decades. Uh, you know, having someone in the house who fulfilled a consistent, um, responsible role in providing for the family, uh, a role model, uh, a, a person in a position of authority who, uh, who did something that was every day that was in support of the family uh, and just making ends meet. Um, and... You can take that with the job. You can take that with, you know, being a handyman around the house. You know, something breaks. You take the initiative because you have to. No one else is going to do it for you mm -hmm. to, you know, the sink's, uh, the sink's broken or the toilet's clogged or whatever it is. You know, it's dirty work, but, you know, it has to be done because the, you know, you need that sink in order to wash the dishes. So, you know, you got to do it. And that is a really good role model behavior to have in an environment. Yeah, I mean, the, it turns out that the share of U.S. children living with an unmarried parent has actually doubled since the 1960s. And I think that coincides with kind of a cultural shift in the idea of what a family should look like, which is reflected in current, you know, polls where, you know, millennials will say that, well, you know, only, you know, I think it's somewhere around 60 or, or 50 or 40 percent, I think it was 44 percent of millennials said that uh, the marriage was becoming obsolete. Marriage as an institution was obsolete. And a lot of this is because of, you know, different kinds of welfare that will, you know, kind of pick up the slack for a woman if she chooses not to have 
a, a husband or a man in the house, and that is, um, you know, that's actually the the welfare itself actually uh, kind of uh, criminalizes, or it doesn't criminalize, but it makes it more difficult for her to get that same amount of money if she were to be married. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then you know the culture itself says, well, women are should be independent, and you shouldn't have to worry about being a a, a wife or a um, you know, or having to raise children, and you know, you put all this pressure on women to succeed and to be the the best self that they can be, and and then you know they what they what are they going to choose to then just kind of live in the shadows of a of a breadwinner or you know and to raise children, um, you know it's it's it damages their self respect I think in some way. I think it co opts it in a in an odd way where traditionally I would say uh, you had the male breadwinner and then you had um, you know, the woman who was taking care of the household and, uh, you know, helping to raise the children, that's the very traditional view. And the feminists have taken that and said that it's, uh, it's wrong and evil and it's patriarchal and oppressive, I think is the biggest word that they like to use. Um, and, and so it, it takes that traditional motherly role, the traditional role within a family, where women had a sense of purpose which mirrored their biological drive to nurture and to raise children, uh, to love children. Uh, it, it takes that and it spits in the face of it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that was part of the plan all along, too. Um, when you look at the original feminists and what they wrote, you know, mm -hmm. feminists like uh, Shulamith Firestone, who wrote in the Dialectics of Sex, and I'm quoting here, unless revolution uproots the basic social organization, the biological family, the vinculum through which the psychology of power can always be smuggled, the, tapeworm, the tapeworm of exploitation will never be annihilated, end quote. You know, this was their, you know, this was their plan. This, you know, what, for whatever mm -hmm. strange conspiratorial reasons they had, but was to quote unquote liberate women from the family in order to destroy the family, destroy this what they called the tapeworm of power, which you know nowadays that you know it, it manifests and claims to oppression and patriarchy, where everything becomes colored in this strange power dynamic when when it's not whatsoever that simple. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's power involved, correct, but. You know, we know much more about things like the dominance hierarchy now in, in terms of competence and in terms of being successful and rising and working your way through, quote unquote, you know, the dominance hierarchy, that it has very little to do with this nasty, you know, malevolent force. Um, you know, at least in, mo in at least in many ways, you know, like you look at a father who's who's protecting his family he you know he goes out and he works let's say he works a dangerous job and he sees it as a way of protecting his wife from the the harshness of the world to go out there and do that and take that on his own shoulders and then to come back and and then she takes on her own shoulders you know the raising and the tending to the psychology of the children and the family and keeping um, everything nice and is, you know, making everyone as happy as she possibly can. It's a massive sacrifice, really, for her, because, you know, how can that possibly be, be your your goal in life? You know, if you look at the, you know, the bottom dregs of society throughout time, it's never this 
you know, I mean, in some cases, possibly it's pathological abuse, but that's, that's not the core of it. The core is survival and these people doing everything they can and people are damaged in obvious ways. People are damaged and it doesn't function the way that we want it to. But to say that this family is the, the vinculum through which the psychology of power can always be smuggled is at the heart of this feminist, um, uh, plan this feminist drive to destroy the fatherhood to destroy men in general and you know it started with the sexual revolution and the liberation of of women from you know from traditional whatever sex roles but then it led to as we uh, see the 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 just drastic collapse of fatherhood in general because uh, i think he uh, the author of the new politics of sex uh, discusses the fact that marriage isn't about procreation it's about creating fatherhood, you know, because a mother can have a child and that's his, his or her mother, you know, but the father, you know, how do you get the father to get skin in the game? You know, you yeah. really need the father to have skin in the game in order to contribute these very important things in order to keep society stable. As we discussed all those different building blocks, uh, developmental stages for the evolution or for the development of a child's healthy psychology and it's necessary to have two parents involved you need to have the rough and tumble play of the father you need to have someone that's able to uh impose the discipline necessary and then you also need someone to attend to those connection and loving and nurturing type activities that will you know strengthen the the child's inner sense of who they are and that they are no matter what they go through that they will still be uh loved for for whatever sense. Um, but anyway, so yes, and by the 90s, marriage just completely was, was you know, a pretty, it was pretty rough. Um, now, recently, the number of unmarried, uh, per, the number of percent, or the percentage of babies born to unmarried women has reached up to 40%. So, and this is, you know, just unplanned, completely, you know, just whoop, had a baby and while the shotgun marriages you know people who are going and immediately after having a, a child they get married has dropped catastrophic just you watch you look at these charts and it just plunges it just you know there's it doesn't really happen anymore because we've discussed you know cultural factors related to the liberation of people from these kinds of you know familial responsibilities yeah there's no longer that moral uh, imperative to save the family honor, I guess you could put it in one sense, um, by getting married and uh, having that child within a married couple. And then, like you said, the, the sexual liberation movement, which tried to free society from these oppressive regimes, uh, actually undermined that. And, you know, like you said, there's an unbelievable amount of children that are being born outside of wedlock, uh, which has its own... Uh, you know, like you said earlier with the statistics of children getting uh, or being, you know, twice as likely or however many times more likely of being or having behavioral problems or getting kicked out of school or truancy and uh, criminal behavior, um, which I think um, Adrian Rain talked a little bit about in his book, Anatomy of Violence, and some of those statistics that he talked about, which is, you know, basically that when you're raised without a father, <clears throat> uh, you're much more likely to have violent tendencies and criminal behavior. And that's just, and, and you want to take away men from the house? 
Are you insane? Well, how much easier then to criminalize men when you've turned them into criminals? <laughs> well, looking at all of this as a kind of a backdrop, a, a historical uh, context um, or, or bedrock, uh, for lack of a better term. So all of these uh, things that we're going to discuss today uh, concerning the cultural societal influences on, on children and uh, people growing up in the past 20 years, or some people call it the iGen or iGeneration. Uh, so that, that's like one, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, foundational losses um, th that has uh, affected this group that we're looking at today. And um, there are a number of other influences that we're seeing today that have been uh, whether you know, spontaneously um, uh, manifested in, in our society or by design uh, in some sense uh, has just been chipping away at the psychological, emotional um, foundation of, of young people uh, in our country. Um, so I think we might talk a little bit um, getting back to the strange contagion uh, themes of a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were covering the rash of suicides in California and elsewhere, um, which have been largely attributed to, uh, in some cases, use of the internet or misuse of the internet or iPhones, uh, tools that have been um, or touted as ways to communicate, ways to be connected, uh, when in fact they are these kind of narcissistic indulgences um, that at the end of the day just kind of uh, give young people a dopamine hit, uh, an instant of, of gratification, and have done nothing for them in, in the growth of their being, in the growth of their uh, their. their personalities and their character. Um, it's not news they're getting. It's not information they're getting. It's, it's entertainment. That's what it comes down to. So, you know, if you know anybody who's grown up in this generation, if you've observed anybody, uh, it, it's quite a shocking thing to see them wake up in the morning uh, to check their Instagram account and look at all of the photos of their friends. I mean, all of this is by now quite obvious uh, to many people who've been observing this. But I don't think that we've really examined how detrimental. Uh, I don't think it's become um, into, the, into our uh, consciousness how this, this phenomena has poisoned the minds and the, the souls of, of young people in the West, especially. So this has been one huge influence um, that has eroded uh, the 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 very uh, um, the very integrity of, of young people, um, and I don't I don't see a way out at this point because it's become a it's an addiction it's a uh, it's a it's a kind of a it's a codependence uh, it's something that they're uh, so connected to uh, you know we could we could go through the stats of the numbers of hours. Uh, that young people spend on 
their phones, on their tablets, on their computers, looking at uh, meaningless information, um, when in fact they're not reading anything. Uh, Corey, I think there were some stats about, what is it, one one third out of all teenagers of this I generation haven't read a book in a year. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Something really crazy. Uh, and it, it got me thinking about when I was growing up, you know, spending so much time outdoors, spending so much time with friends uh, in a state of play uh, when my parents were working, um, you know, uh, engaging in imagination, going to going to parties, occasionally getting into a bit of trouble, uh, just having normal experiences of interacting with the world in a real way that wasn't mediated by uh, social media, uh, that, wasn't, um, that wasn't captured by uh, YouTube videos. Um, so I feel like, you know, to read some of these stats, which are quite shocking, I feel like there's a whole generation of, of people now who, have, uh, who are disconnected with reality in such an intrinsic way. Um, so they've, they've largely lost the role model of a father in many cases. Uh, this has been replaced by the, you know, they used to say the, the TV was the babysitter. Well, now it's, you know, it's your, it's your iPhone. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, uh, I think like you're saying that they're, they're disconnected from reality in so many different ways. Um, you know, like some of the statistics are alarming, like close to half of them don't, don't work. You know, don't have jobs during the summer. Don't work during the school year. Uh, they don't get that experience of you know earning a paycheck, buying your own stuff. And when you know you analyze the data, they're also not getting allowances. You know, their parents don't have them do things around the house in order to earn money. You know, to simulate kind of like a, you know getting a job or to prepare them for that. In many cases, they just when they want money, they just ask for it. That's the general state of, you know, of affairs uh, for this generation. They're not working, they're not earning uh, allowances, so they don't get that kind of an experience. And like you discussed the fact that, you know, on, online you're, you know, they're not, they're not reading really in-depth material or engaging material necessarily. Um, you know, we're talking about the, the, the general, you know, public, you know, in statistics, you know. Mm -hmm. Not the you know individuals because I think we all know individual children who you know who buck the trend, but they are also um, they're not engaging in really engaging material, but they're also being bullied. You know when they're on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, they can't get away from these these bullies. You know, and when I was growing up, if I was bullied by somebody, I had a chance to regroup. When I went home, I had a chance to be to say you know to my dad, hey, I got bullied, and he would tell me how to take care of it. Well, nowadays, you know, they go home, but it, the bully follows them. It's all over the social media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, close to 60% of them claim to be bullied uh, on social media. And it's extremely rough for young girls. Um, and because they, you know, since the iPhone was introduced in 2007, um, you know, the, the rates of girls that are aged around 10 to 14... Uh, who are going to emergency rooms for self for self harm for you know cutting themselves or for inflicting you know serious injuries to themselves it keeps rising by close to twenty percent every year since two thousand nine you know just a couple of years after the iPhone yeah it was nineteen percent every year mm -hmm. year over year yeah and the you know the the amount of 
you know, teenagers who have major depressive epi episodes has just been skyrocketing as well. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to, to bullying, but then also a lot of it can be attributed to um, just not gaining the tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because everyone, you know, I think, you know, you're really lucky if you didn't get bullied. You were probably the bully, <laughs> you know, if, if you weren't getting bullied. But you, you get those experiences. You have a chance to regroup, and then you build something. Uh, you, you know, some part of you evolves, adapts. You learn how to how to take it on, how not to let it, or how not to take it on, how not to take it personally, how to um, face the the harshness of reality. Um, but like we said, you know, the statistics just are, are showing time and time again that these, the kids aren't going out and taking these challenges. The number of uh, teens who are learning how to drive has, has plummeted as right. well. So you have, you have that statistic. You have the statistic of kids who are only going to the mall with their parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't spend any time, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, with friends in, in proximity, in contact. Uh, they're not reading, they're, they're not thinking. Um, and I, I think another element of this is that, you know, I was thinking, gosh, that might, that must really kind of, uh, suck the meaning out of a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you're not having meaningful social interaction, uh, in proximity to somebody, if you're not sharing things, if you're not empathizing and, and, and showing compassion to your friend's problem uh, by having a real honest conversation, for instance, uh, you know, what, what else is there but, but a narcissistic bubble of, uh, of avatars and, and um, emojis and emojis and selfies that, that, uh, that prop oneself up in, in the eyes of others, which mm -hmm. is, I think, what a lot of people attempt to do. Uh, so you, you have that whole phenomena going on and there is also the incredible, uh, decay in the quality of education in the mm -hmm. Western world. And, uh, we have some stories here today that, um, I mean, uh, you know, what, what can I say? You, you read these stories and, and, uh, of, of the types of individuals who are now responsible for putting ideas into uh, the minds of young people uh, in in Western schools, um, who have this incredible responsibility, who I, I wouldn't even want them in the same ro room with my child, mm -hmm. you know, no less spending six or seven hours a day, five days a week uh, for, for nine or 10 months out of the year. Um, and uh, we can talk about some of those stories. I, I think they're they're pretty shocking and um, and indicative of of how uh, this spectrum of radical liberal thinking and feminism uh, and cultural Marxism and postmodernism—all topics we've been um, bringing out in the show these past few months—all uh, of these are, are have become incredible. Um, uh, kind of centers of gravity in thought and, and, and ideology and thinking for young people uh, in the West. Uh, and, and you read about some of these professors and what they're filling the minds, what they're filling their minds with um, of these young people. And it, it's, you know, coupled with everything else we've been talking about, it's like the perfect storm for a, 
uh, a really a lost generation of, of young people mm-hmm. um, that we're looking at today. Um, so just, on, just as one example of a byproduct, I think, of this, uh, the feminist postmodern uh, influence within education. I was watching a video this morning um, about a, uh, it was a, a black, a young black woman from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And she was giving a, she was just speaking um, at the University of Cape Town in a group that was a, a safe space for discussing the decolonization of science. And this woman, this young woman was ranting and raving about how um, uh, Newtonian physics was the colonization of your minds. And so they, and the only thing that they could do was to uh, get rid of everything because uh, science is based on the Western mindset and Western influence. And that somehow makes everything that science has uncovered wrong. I, I don't know where, how she made that leap, but it was just absolutely shocking um, to hear her say it. And I'm trying to remember exactly <laughs> what it was that she said. You know, it, it just makes me think that in, in some of these stories that we'll get to, uh, so much of this, um, what we're witnessing is an appeal to the emotions. Yes, that was that was my point, is you, you get to the point where you can't think critically, because, yeah, what she was saying was that she needed to, or they needed to decolonize their mind from Western scientific thought, um, because science is based on in Western ideas. And what struck me was that she had absolutely no knowledge of scientific or mathematic history to realize that the basis of mathematics comes from Babylonia, the Middle East, and some of it came from the Far East in China, and some of it came from the, the Egyptians, which is from Africa. And so that whole thing about her decolonizing your mind from Western science, it's like, you moron. Mm-hmm. This, this is based in things that come from many cultures. It has nothing to do with Western oppression and patriarchy. Was this a public school? Uh, it was the University of oh, Cape Town. Oh, it was the University. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I do have a, a good example from uh, the public schools of Adena, Minnesota, where uh, this all started in 2013, so the cohort that we're talking about would have been about eight at the time, and in the public schools of Adena, they all decided to ditch the standards, which were the gold standards, among the state school districts, and go from being an upscale public school system to a social justice public school system. And uh, it all began in 2013. And here I'll just read um, from the article. The shift began in 2013 when Adena school leaders adopted the All for All Strategic Plan, a sweeping initiative that reordered the district's mission from academic excellence for all students to racial equity. Equity in this context does not mean equality or fairness. It means racial identity politics. So the school district's all-for-all plan mandated that henceforth all teaching and learning experiences would be viewed through the lens of racial equity and that only racially conscious teachers and administrators should be hired. District leaders assured parents this would reduce Adina's racial achievement gap, which they attributed to barriers rooted in racial constructs and cultural misunderstandings. 
As a result, the school system's obsession with quote-unquote white privilege now begins in kindergarten, where kids are supposed to trace their hands, color them to reflect their skin tone, and then place the cutouts on a poster reading, stop thinking your skin color is better than anyone else's. Everyone is special. And, you know, et cetera, et What cetera. kind of a mind job is that? Don't think that your skin color means anything, but you need to know what your skin color is because that means something. What kind of nonsense is that? And that's the kind of uh, education that these kindergartners are receiving. Um, it's absolutely, absolutely crazy. It reminds me of that, um, those uh, academics who recently came out um, for posting all those, or they, they gave all those bogus papers to all these mm -hmm. institutions or, and they were, you know, published in major journals. And one of the papers that they got published was on having white students sit in chains in the classroom and get publicly humiliated because in order for them to, under, to own their own white privilege and that if they, if they said that this was a bad thing, then that was just evidence that their white privilege had made them frail and fragile and this is the kind of thinking that goes on in these institutions of higher learning. <laughs> this kind of complete and utter racism is what's being taught in public schools to these kids who, as we've discussed already, they're not equipped. I mean, no kid is equipped for this kind of nonsense, but these kids are even more crippled emotionally. Right. Mm -hmm. They are being set up, this whole generation, right. so many of them set up. They are, they are being told to take a political position on something that um, they're many years away from even beginning to uh, assess. It, it's being foisted upon them like any, any, uh, any of the worst totalitarian regimes that we've read about in history, where you're, you have a certain idea. Uh, in Israel, it's all Arabs are evil. You know, you're going to join the IDF when you're, when you're 18. Um, you know, uh, the very worst elements of, of the Soviet Union were much the same way when Stalin was in power. Uh, Stalin was basically your father. Uh, the state was all important. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's basically the same thing. Um, your critical thinking gets, gets destroyed and your ability to self-regulate your emotion also gets destroyed so that you are a you know adult-sized little person basically mm -hmm. and that's not good for society as a whole but if you have you know political ambitions and a fascist tendency that is just you know ripe pickings right there yeah yeah the public schools are I mean, it's just a nightmare when you read through some of the statistics and you look at what the students go through. Um, you know, I think we're all aware of the like the school shooting drills that that go on, and not all of them are active um, drills, but they they do exist where people are you know SWAT members will dress up in riot gear, you know, with mm -hmm. their uh, fake guns, you know, blasting through the school, pretending like they, you know, it's an actual live shooter, and all these kids are traumatized, and it's proving that it doesn't work, or you know, that it's not going to prepare these students for an actual drill. I mean, what it does is it it teaches them about the totalitarian, authoritarian um, powers of of the government that they're allowed to just come in with guns mm -hmm. and you know and simulate for your own good. You know, this is for our own good. They're here to protect us, but it's just such a 
and how Police many, state. Yes. How many of those rules have been uh, put into motion without even a warning to the students right. also? Well, that was something that definitely happened in my high school when I was there was we had active shooter drills. And uh, if I remember right, you know, the fire alarms went off or something like that. And, you know, everybody had to go stand in a corner so that way you weren't visible from the doorway and somebody would come around and then they'd jiggle the lock to make sure the door was locked and then they'd go on to the next one. Um, and yeah, if you have, I mean, I was like, you know, 17, 18 at the time, so it was fine, I guess for me, because I could handle it. But if you're talking about middle school or elementary school children and you're doing this kind of thing, that's just traumatizing. There's no way for them to be able to handle that. Mm -hmm. Well, the percentage of public schools running them, um, according to 2016 statistics, was nearly 95% of schools have these kinds of drills. But, you know, this doesn't, um, this includes, you know, just low-key lockdowns, uh, which, you know, for, that's, that's not a big deal, but it's, um, you know, that there's still those, that atmosphere, you know, this mm -hmm. atmosphere of fear, this, mm -hmm. this atmosphere that's played up on by the media, mm -hmm. uh, every time there is some sort of a school shooting or even, um, you know, when they, when they hype up statistics, like, uh, like they were caught doing recently where they were lying about the number of school shootings, mm -hmm. you know, they, they spread this social contagion of fear and paranoia. And then, you know, they use it, you know, political actors will use that to, to mobilize protests in order to mm -hmm. you know take away gun rights and once again you see all these students their emotions being manipulated in order to uh, advance what appears to be this authoritarian uh, agenda you know that's you know they call it you know progressive authoritarianism or liberal authoritarianism but it just looks authoritarian to me you know no need to try and you know put any sort of lipstick on that um, on that pig as they, as they may say <laughs> But uh, so, yeah, there's this police state type vibe where, you know, 95% of schools run these kinds of drills. And then, you know, somewhere near 60% have armed guards um, that carry weapons on campus and who routinely are, you know, being called in to engage students on even minor yeah, sorts minor of minor infractions. Yeah, minor infractions, which this was a big thing. I remember, um, you know, a few years back, it seemed like every week on SOT, we were seeing another story about a student being beaten by a mm -hmm. resource officer, being hurt, um, you know, or, or just being engaged or put in handcuffs by a school resource officer for things that really make no sense, mm -hmm. you know, you know, like bringing scissors to school or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. And then when they're actually needed, like during that shooting not too long ago, where they just stand outside and want and wait mm -hmm. until the shooter leaves. Yeah, you know, just absolutely, um, absolutely bizarre. But that's not the worst thing about public schools, Adam. Oh, I think you have a. Yeah. I think you have a really shocking statistic handy about um, about sexual abuse. So in their 2002 survey, the AAUW reported that of students who had been harassed, 38% were harassed by teachers or other school employees. One survey that was conducted with, with psychology students report that 10% had sexual interactions with their educators. In turn, 13% of educators reported that sexual, reported sexual interactions with their students. Holy God. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I, I read a 2004 study uh, that reported that a student was 100 times more likely to be sexually 
assaulted by their teacher than by priests. And this was at a time when the, all that uproar, and that still goes on about you know molestation in the in the Catholic Church. But in the meantime, in schools, that you don't hear a peep about what students are going through in schools. And one part of the problem is, is like we said, um, you know, since 2007, the problem is that these predators have constant access to these kids through their phones. A survey found that. Um, 26% of teenagers have participated in these kinds of activities on their phone. And 11% um, said they've shared naked pictures via text messages. Um, and this, these predators have constant access, mm -hmm. and it's unmonitored. Up to 80% of parents don't know what their kids are up to online. Yeah, and the same uh, American Association of University Women found that 290,000 students experienced some sort of physical sexual abuse by a public school employee between 1991 and 2000. And I went and I looked, um, and the worst of numbers that I could find uh, as far as uh, priests' allegations of sexual abuse or misconduct was that um, of the like 100,000 priests that were active for like I think a, a 40 year period or something like that. There was a 5.8% of them had been um, accused and were, there was, it was a justifiable accusation. Mm -hmm. And the number of victims was about just shy of 20,000 if I remember right. And I got that from priesthoodaccountability.org. So when you think about those numbers, just shy of 20,000 for decades worth versus nine years and 290,000, yeah, it just boggles my mind that there's all of the, I mean, it's basically a trope at this point uh, yeah. in our society to, to make fun of priests for being sexual abusers, but you don't hear a peep about it when it comes to educators. I was just thinking the same thing. I mean, if, if all those numbers are correct, Mm -hmm. uh, th this is something that, you know, 10 years from now, if we're all still here, uh, will be the new kind of, um, basically the new scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also says so much about how this information must be suppressed mm -hmm. that, that we don't know about it. Oh, yeah. Um, I did want to get back to a couple of the more political, ideological uh, ways in which students are being abused right now, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in uh, U.S. schools. Uh, this is an article called Indoctrination of Young Minds. School teachers belonging to Antifa spinoff group are using students to further their radical agendas. Now, granted, this is probably a pretty extreme example, but the fact that this is happening at all um, is... Uh, telling of, of some of the worst ways in which, um, most extreme ways in which kids are being indoctrinated into uh, a radical liberal point of view. Uh, public school teachers are behind a leading far-left militant group that is part of the Antifa network and federal officials say is committing, quote, domestic terrorist violence, end quote. By any means necessary, that's the name of the group, uh, which has played a key role role 
in riots in Berkeley, Sacramento, and elsewhere has dozens of public school teachers among its members, including among its most prominent leaders. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security began paying closer attention to Antifa groups in general after BAMN, by any means necessary, and other extremists started a riot and attacked marchers at a white nationalist rally in Sacramento last July. The Sacramento violence left at least 10 people hospitalized, several of whom had knife wounds. One of BAM's most prominent organizers is Yvette Felarka, a Berkeley middle school teacher and pro-violence militant. Felarka currently faces charges of inciting a riot for her role in the Sacramento violence. After BAMN and other Antifa groups staged violent protests in Berkeley to keep right-wing author Milo Yiannopoulos from speaking, Falarka defended her group's acts of violence. BAM was able to cancel another event, this time an April speech by pro-Trump author Ann Coulter, by promising a repeat performance of the Milo riots. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security say Antifa groups like BAM are engaging in domestic terrorist violence. Just last weekend, uh, this is a few weeks ago, Falarka helped organize BAM's mass demonstrations that shut down a free speech rally in Berkeley. As with BAM's other organized actions, left-wing actors at, at the demonstrations violently attacked peaceful protesters. It also goes on to say that BAM organizer and high school teacher Nicole Conaway organized a quote-unquote sick out at her school in 2015, leading other teachers in calling in sick to protest the policies of Republican Governor Rick Snyder. The sick out forced six Detroit area schools to cancel classes, affecting nearly 4,000 students. One month later, Conaway led students in a school walkout protesting poor building conditions. That's not such a bad thing, I suppose. Um... She was one of the BAM organizers arrested in connection with the protest. But what we're talking about here, especially in, uh, in, <laughs> you know, in organizing students uh, or other teachers uh, to protest the policies of a, of a governor, um, even, if you, even if the policies are pretty horrible, uh, this has a knock-on effect uh, for students who are not in a position to... Um, to be political, who are relying on a, a modicum of education every day, uh, who are just getting their bearings with life, with the things that they're learning, uh, with with whatever it is that they're being engaged with in their lives. Um, so at the very least, these teachers are highly responsible. Um, at the very worst, uh, I think that... Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a kind of level of criminal negligence involved mm -hmm. in, in doing these types of things. Yeah, that, that criminal negligence really seems to spread across the, the public school system. Um, you know, discussing uh, the sexual abuse statistics, but then there's the problem with their sex education programs, oh, God. which they think mm -hmm. um, are normal, but are graphic. You know, some of these manuals are borderline pornography and mm -hmm. it's led you know thousands of parents from australia to canada to america because this is a western phenomenon to protest 
and to demand the, that they stop trying to teach these deviant activities to children. And kindergartners, you know, they yeah, man. to kindergartners. kindergartners. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely, it, I've got a quote, um, and it's, it's written by somebody who, you know, radically disagrees with this, but I think that it really sums up the attitude that, I mean, we should have about, you know, sexualizing children in this way. So he, he writes, try to imagine explaining to the old farmers of Prince Edward Island the need to teach small children how to insert safely, of course, antiseptically, of course, their fingers or tongues or other protuberances into the orifice of another kid of ambiguous sex, including the anus. It is not that they would disagree with you. It is not that they would have an alternative opinion about behavior that makes old-fashioned sodomy look like a peck on the cheek. It is that they would think you had lost your mind. They would believe that you were suffering a terrifying moral and psychological illness nigh unto demonic possession, mm -hmm. perhaps well past it. Would they let you speak to their children? They would not want you to speak to their parents or friends or anybody, not because they would be afraid that you might persuade or entice one of them, but merely to spare their loved ones the experience of something so gross, so wicked, so repulsive, so sad. They themselves in future years would let the, mem the memory of it drop into the darkness and the silence. You do not make scrapbooks of slime, and you do not expose children to that. That is not part of the educational system's that's not why we have an educational system. An, edu an educational system should be to help you think critically and logically and to give you a, a basic understanding of history, of science, of mathematics, uh, economics, a basic understanding to where you can walk out into the world and be able to deal with the subtle nuances that come with a very complex society not to know how to put on a condom on a wooden prophylactic mm -hmm. whatever yeah yeah and they're they're not teaching that um because according to the statistics only about 65 percent i think it was it was up to 65 percent of students were not good could not read at a proficient level or do basic math mm -hmm. 60 to 65 percent that they're not teaching anymore they're, they're indoctrinating. This mm -hmm. is what these these kids are going through. And so then we wonder why in 2016, when you know this the oldest of this cohort that we're talking about goes to college, the colleges start to go absolutely insane. And now we have a, a problem of mass hysteria on colleges where everything is about white privilege. Everything is about being oppressed. You know, everyone, you know, they're mocking I mean, probably rightfully so, these are adults at this point, but being mocked, you know, for being snowflakes. But look at what they went, look at what conditioned them. Mm -hmm. You know, this is society's child. Yep. This is what American society, Western society increasingly, has given birth to. This is the, the next generation. And it doesn't look good. It's not looking good at all. <laughs> Corey, you, you uh, mentioned before the show a story about inviting Satanists to speak in, at a classroom. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I, I didn't read that article. What was the, uh, the gist of it was a, a Satanist was actually brought into a school to, uh, to do what? To read to students, I think it was. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I, it was. Uh, well, I know when they did it with um, the 
the tranny who was dressed in her, his, her, whatever, you know, um, full-on garb, you know, her drag ensemble, I guess. Uh, you know, it was just story time with a drag queen. And, yeah, I think I remember you saying that it was, uh, you know, at one point she asked the, the students, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, a little boy stands up and he's like, I want to be an astronaut. And then the tranny's just like, yeah, you could be a tranny astronaut. And then another person says, yeah, I want to be a hairdresser. And he's like, yeah, you can be a tranny hairdresser. And just <laughs> No. Be, being a tranny, being the, the, uh, the, the ideal kind of yeah. um, vision I'm, of adulthood. It or, just makes you wonder how I many, I, I can't imagine that parents know that that's going on. I couldn't imagine letting that child go back to that classroom after somebody in some you know administrative capacity whether it was the teacher or somebody else mm -hmm. decided that this would be a good idea because of diversity or whatever crazy reason that they they have um to expose children to 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 sexualize children in the case of transsexuals and to expose them to absolute pathology you don't get much more pathog pathological than being a satanist <laughs> that's pretty much as bad as it gets but you know, it's funny because Satanism is to Christianity what postmodernism is to our secular liberal order. And it's and now it's being shown to kids. You know, mm -hmm. this is how the kids are being raised, what they're, you know, being mm -hmm. exposed to on the internet. And I know uh from personal experience, uh, you know, several nieces and nephews um who uh were raised in that generation and who turned out fantastically well responsible adults um but you know they had parents that cared about them you know parents who had them work you know this we're not saying that every child that's going um through this generation is like this and no doubt a lot of them though are struggling for um for a sense of uh identity and sanity you know in watching all of their peers go nuts like they are mm -hmm. and it's you know just a just a this seems like a crisis on the horizon because if this problem isn't solved um you know if this doesn't make it into like a general awareness this all of these problems and nothing is done about it then i mean things can only get worse as we've seen the the statistics for um children not engaging in responsible activities keep on plummeting or keep on you know skyrocketing for not engaging in responsible activities and you know for watching pornography that's how they learn about relationships and uh, and it's impacting their psychology it's impacting their choices to even date one another we've seen statistics of you know teens dating have gone way down um and you know just through interviews with teens you know one teenager said that it was because there wasn't anything special about it. He'd seen it all on, you know, whatever, you know, pornography website. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything mad. He said there wasn't anything magical about it. And this is the kind of cynicism um, that just really needs to be nipped in the bud. And it's not looking like there's anybody who's going to be able to do that anytime soon. Well, I have a question that I don't uh, think there's an answer for, but I want to ask it nonetheless. Um, so, Every generation of of young people is going to have their set of issues, given you know what their uh, contemporary culture is doing and what the zeitgeist is and the trends are and the 
the state of the economy. I mean, all of these things play an influence. There are challenges for every generation. However, you know, you take a step back. It's like we've, well, I'll speak for myself. It's like I, I woke up one day uh, reading all of these stories and uh, it's like, what the hell happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't mean to say it's like, by the way. I mean, that, that's, that's that a common... What it, that's what it is. It's like, it is. <laughs> it's like this, like... No. Uh, it's not like anything. This is exactly what's uh, occurring. I mean, we have a... It's, it's as though we have a whole generation of, uh, of people who are being... Um, attacked in some sense uh, from every angle uh, who are at every disadvantage for being functional human beings in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all happening at once and it's all simultaneous. Uh, the social contagion is virulent and, uh, and it's knocking these, these kids out like flies. Um, you know, I know one or two uh, iGen people who have suffered severe depression, who are addicted to their phones, who've had lousy teachers, who, uh, who are subject to several of the things that we've mentioned on today's show. So it, it's, it's, this isn't a foreign, abstract idea to me at all. I've seen it. Um, what's incredible to me is how pervasive it is. Mm-hmm. And the implications for the future, as you were saying a few minutes ago, Corey, it's like, where are these, where are the, where is this generation of kids going to take society? All of these ideas uh, have, you know, all of these influences have been uh, taking form right now. What, what are the choices that these kids are going to make in the near future when they become, um, when they get into political office or become business leaders? Will they even be capable of such things? Would, would they rather take to the streets in, in reaction to the next uh, offense mm-hmm. than, than take any responsibility for something more constructive, in a more constructive way? So uh, this is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's far-reaching. We, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll only really begin to see what the effects of it are in coming years. But I think the outlines of it are becoming very clear. There was one, uh, there's a video that I had watched um, called What is the Internet Doing to Our Brains? Um, And it was a talk given by Nicholas Carr. And he did a really good job of outlining um, what it is exactly that the Internet has done to our brains. And, you know, it makes a couple of good points. And... Uh, one of the things that he was talking about was the difference between short-term memory and long-term memory and why this is important. And the, the way that you get to deep, critical thought is to be able to sit with some information or some idea and just sit with it, give it your attention. Uh, whereas with the Internet and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, Twitter... Um, this has conditioned people's minds to jump from one page to the next. He said that uh, the statistic is that, by and large, the general population spends no longer than 10 seconds on any particular web page. 
10 seconds. You, there's, your working memory can only hold a, a very few number of things at a time. So there's no possible way for you to really put together anything into a logical, coherent, deeply well thought out idea if, you know, in the span of five minutes, you've looked at 50 different articles and you haven't really read them. You just skimmed it for the gist and then on to the next one and on to the next one. And one thing he said to sum up his point um, was that we're sacrificing our ability to determine ourselves what our minds focus on and how long we think about these things. Um, we're ceding our responsibility for critical thinking to the internet and to people in Facebook, Google, etc. And I think you can, you know, apply that into um, pretty much pretty much everything. Uh, the with the political sphere, we're sacrificing our ability to think logically and critically about uh, economic or social policies to people that just simply appeal to the emotions and make us feel good. And that is not a good avenue to take. Nope. And the generation we're talking about is their primary audience, it seems. That's mm -hmm. that's their big that's their big uh, audience for now. Well, on that note, guys, what do you uh do you have anything else that you'd like to discuss about the this generation? No, nope, I'm good. I'm done. Yeah, I feel like it's that's it's really I'm terrified enough. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's exhausted us. <laughs> yes, emotionally exhausted. Yeah. Maybe a little bit depressed. But that does it for today. So tune in tomorrow for Newsreel with Joe Quinn and Neil Bradley at noon Eastern Standard Time. And next Friday for the Health and Wellness Show. Tune back next week uh, for us. And until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.